Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where two unhinged maniacs compulsively consume gobs of historical content that make our husbands blush. And then we turn around and um, we regurgitate them here with you, for you. And make each other blush or not. Uh, you, good, good, good luck. <laughs> Um, I am host number two, but I will say it first. I am Teresa Potratz, and that one is... I'm Angie, but I always thought she was host number one. Honestly, I said host <laughs> number two just to throw a wrench at you. And if you can dodge a wrench, dodge a ball. I mean, okay, that's fair. I love that for us. We're both I... host number two. <laughs> that would be a great shirt. I too am host number two. I like it. We're running with it. Okay. My face itches. Your whole face itches? Yeah, it's a it's a weird tired thing when I'm tired, my face itches. I I mean oh, okay. I know. Weird, huh? I mean I just am cranky. Oh, I'm cranky too. But like, I don't, I don't know. I just think, but I, I think my eyebrows have a personality of their own. My face has a personality of its own and it proceeds to scream whatever it is thinking aloud for the world. I honestly miss having to wear a mask for that reason because my face hmm, has gotten me in more trouble than my words have. <laughs> yep. So this whole week, I did the dumb thing and got my notes done compulsively early and then couldn't tell you about <laughs> my new best friend. And I, I am frustrated. I have been frustrated this whole week because you, you've left me stranded high and dry. My husband can only hear the story one time. He's already heard it. He doesn't want to hear it again. I try. I told my story to my husband and like, I did a really great job of retelling the highlight reel, you know? Mm. And then he did a really great job the next day of proceeding to make me blush on every level you could. Dropping one-liners at me. From your own story? From my own story, yeah. So are you doing a brothel, madam? (laughs) No, but like he, I was like finishing my notes, you know, and he was he was just dropping comments like left and right and and i was like oh oh please stop i need you to not even be in the same room with me now <laughs> it was funny it made me laugh. then you'll know why later all right but i want to hear your story first since you've been waiting the longest that's that's and I'm fair. the worst friend and didn't want to hear it until today. You refused to hear it. You refused to get your notes done early. And you had this thing called a family and a life. And it got in the way of my scheduling, which was, I need to tell you everything. I need to tell you everything now. Pause Listen, I almost said to you when you texted me that, um, can we just record tonight your story? <laughs> and then, because I want to hear it. So for those playing at home, I texted Angie and said, that my my figure is my new best friend. And as being their new best friend, I 100% know that this person would get me arrested. 100%. <laughs> there's, there's, I'm, I'm going down. 
that's just what we're doing today, guys. That's uh Yeah. So you know? come get arrested with me. I'm here for it. My sources are an article from Yahoo News titled A Small Light Bosses Break Down the Importance of the Show's Queer and Feminist Themes by Janet A. Leah. A entry from encyclopedia.com that is titled after the the person himself, uh, Willem Arondius. An article from that is Letter... That name. Oh. Everything about this person is a solid mood. <laughs> I love it. There's an article on letherfly.com, Willem Arondius, the gay man, the gay men that led the Dutch resistance by Guy Pilat. SF Bay Times, Willem Arondius, Homosexuals Are Not Cowards by Dr. Bill Lipsky. I love that. And then Queer's Fact podcast had an episode on this human as well as the criminal records podcast had a solid background so. i also listened to a portion of a podcast from queer's back on my person well okay so fingers crossed this isn't the same person no it's not we're separated by at least 300 years okay i checked <laughs> willem arondius is born in the dutch town of barn in 1894 his parents are costume designers. Now, here is where reporting on a Dutch person that isn't widely known is kind of uh, interesting because sources, all the source material is primarily in Dutch. And so when everything gets translated, you get discrepancies like one of six children or he had six siblings. So okay. it's just basically like, you know, when you're translating something and you're like one of six kids, he had six siblings. It's like, okay, which is it? Because it can't be both. Either the parents had a total of six <laughs> or, or yeah, you know what I mean? Like these are things. So there's some, some fun discrepancies in that, but I'm not going to get hung up on the number of siblings because they disappear after this next paragraph. Um, <laughs> okay. When he was 17, he told his parents about being homosexual and homosexuality in the Netherlands was legal since 18 or since, yeah, since 1811. And so this oh, yeah. should have been no big deal. It was a big deal. They were not pleased. And uh, he essentially ends all contact with his family and is kicked out of the house. That drives me insane. I know. Like, I feel like your kids being different on the political spectrum and fighting your political candidate every step of the way is much more deeply impactful than say who they bring to Christmas dinner mm -hmm. as long as that person treats them well. I just, I feel like there's even, even it to me, like you're having a political difference is so minuscule. Like they're their own person. Right. Let them love who they're going to love and let them vote for who they're going to vote for. As long as they're doing the research and as long as they're being decent human beings, <laughs> like yeah. you did your job, let them go about their business. It drives me nuts. You know, and something I tell kiddo pretty much every time we're having like a post you got in trouble and were punished talk. 
where it's like, look, my, my job is to make you into a human that I want to hang out with when you're an adult. And if I don't want to mm-hmm. be near you, I failed. Yeah. Which, which yeah. means I have to teach you how to not ax kick the dog because you were bored. She hasn't done that since she was a toddler, but. Most. <laughs> yeah. And the best part is when that every time I think about her ax kicking the dog, um, that was happening in the background as I was on the phone with my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law said, she's such a sweet child. And I just see the <laughs> foot come up land right on the dog skull and I'm like she is I'm gonna need to let you go real quick (laughs) yeah just like (laughs) speaking of that sweet darling child pardon me while I go beat my children (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. I gotta go abuse the sweet one um when I was a nanny that okay so my boss was absolutely six children when I was a nanny for her and total of seven in the end but um she was the sweetest lady and her children were so doted on and so loved and you absolutely knew they were never spanked once in their life but if they started to act a fool she would very politely say um, excuse me while well, i go beat my children and then she'd exit the room and you would just be left like i want to know what beating my children looks like from her and right Typically, like a, I told you already, you are not to hate your brother. Now go. There was <laughs> there was a, a TikToker. I think I sent you the video today. He was talking about uh, gentle parenting with malicious intent. Oh my god, I love him. And yeah, he I was just like, that one yet, but yeah, he's like, kids, kids, new new family rule. If you guys can't unload the dishwasher without fighting, I am going to hit on your mother in front of you. Yes. Does he start making kissy face at her? Oh, he starts just laying it on thick. He starts talking about, you know, he starts talking about how sexy and attractive she is (laughs) and asks if she wants to try for yet another child. And they're like, dad, no, stop. And he goes, you know, um, do you guys think you can do this without, you know, messing up because, anymore? Because I can hit on mama all day. <laughs> the, the, the more you fight, the more she blushes. So have fun with this. Yes. <laughs> but anyhow, that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about somebody whose parents didn't use gentle parenting. Um, mm, we don't like them. Yeah. So I'm going to pivot back to Willem. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. But I have to tell you about my new best friend because he's amazing. And I... You need to know about it. Um, can, he be, can he be our new best friend? Trust me, you you will want to be his best friend. Um, from a young age, he shows an aptitude for art and went on to study at Amsterdam's Academy of Art. And he studied at the word that I really should have tried to read out loud before now. <laughs> Rexacademie van Beeldand Kortsten where he developed a love for painting and literature. I am going to find somebody who says in a documentary and I'm going to just dub their voice over mine for that. I am begging you to do that. I think it, especially if it's like a deep male voice. <laughs> here for it. That's what I'm, that's, that's what's going to happen. Um, in 1920s, he becomes involved in the Dada movement and was an active member of the Amsterdam Dada, Dadaists, Dadaists. Dadaists? 
I it's think in there. It's just, yeah. But it's it's European avant-garde for yeah. those playing at home. I Look, you know, I looked I it up. I only know because I just, like, not a year ago, finished an art history class. And the Dada movement was, like, a snippet at the very end. I couldn't even tell you. Um, I, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you an artist. I just remember being, like, very avant. <laughs> you can say Willem Arondius is it the artist. I sure can. Um, he's... And he honestly becomes a professional artist at this point. He occasionally wins large commissions. And one of them was doing a mural for the Rotterdam Town Hall. Okay. That one survived. So oh, that's cool. When you when you look up art by him, that will be on page one of your Google search results. Okay. Um, although he kind of falls into the starving artist trope here. For the, oh, at no. least the next 20 years. Uh, it's during at this point, he meets who is called the great joy of his life, Jan Tissen. And who he is the son of a green grocer. They meet in 1933 in Appeldoorn and move to Amsterdam. And they live together as an open as openly as a gay couple until the beginning of the war. Good on him. And when the Nazis invaded the Netherlands in May of 1940, there's a decent chunk of the Dutch population who believed it would just be better to give in to the Nazis than to fight. Yeah, okay. You know, but we're talking even their queen flees. Yeah. You know, so it's it's just a rough time for all. There we go. But uh, Willem Arondius, he's an openly gay man, and he has zero illusions of what the Nazi occupation is going to bring for people like him. Um, and he understands that this is a threat to not only him, but other minorities. And it becomes painfully clear when the Nazi regime recriminalizes homosexuality. Did you tell me at the beginning, is is he, he is white, right? He is white. Okay. Okay, yeah. I was, I was, I don't know why I was picturing a very dapper, handsome um, African. When you said his name, I couldn't tell you why. No problem. No judgments. <laughs> Anyhow. So I, I'd, I'd get my story straight here. Yeah, and I, I'll show you pictures of this incredible man at the end. Cool. Actually, uh, let me scroll down. I will do it now. Um, Thank you for giving me a visual. Right, yeah. <laughs> Okay, me. Oh, he's dreamy, isn't he? Look yes, at that square is. jaw. It's like he jaw. wears a suit like an incredible man, and he can cut it up on the dance floor. I wanted. I want to know who the ladies are. <laughs> Doesn't matter. They're having a good time. That's all that matters. There's more pictures. I won't tell, I won't show you them because I want to get to the rest of the story so that by the time we get to that, you'll go, oh, that's who that is, right? Okay. Okay. No spoilers. Okay. No spoilers. Got it. Or to quote River Song, spoilers. <laughs> okay. So the Nazis recriminalize homosexuality and that's about the time that Arondius decides to sign up for the Dutch resistance. Now, since they've recriminalized homosexuality and since he absolutely loves this man to keep his partner Tissen safe, Arondius breaks up with him and sends him back to Appledorn. I hate we, that. I know. It's I mean, not I get the best. It, but I hate it. Yep. You know, it's, but he kind of, so 
when he was with Tissen, uh, he felt as the older person in the couple, it was his responsibility to provide. And since the fact he was a starving artist and really struggling, this put a lot of tension and pressure on his shoulders. Gotcha. So okay. him doing this plays right into the man that I see him as. Gotcha. Now, when they were together, uh, Arondius, he kind of pivots from making art into producing literature. He And this kind of moves him from the starving artist to a more steady income stream because he publishes two novels, a biography of the Dutch pre-Raphaelite painter Mathis Maris, butchered that, who fought to defend the radical Paris Commune in 1871. And he also does a history called Figures and Problems of Monumental Painting in the Netherlands. That's so, got to be a, a thick book. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, he doesn't seem like a slouch. Uh, by the time that the, this book appears in 1941, he's deeply involved in the Dutch resistance uh, against the occupying forces. Good on him. And at first he decides to produce several underground publications, urging all citizens to resist the fascist occupation of the Netherlands and calling for a mass movement to defy it. When he realizes that the appeals are not enough, he joins the sculptor Gerrit van der Veen to form the Rad van Verzet, the Resistance Council, forging identity cards to protect Amsterdam's Jewish community from deportation to the concentration camps. Oh, I love that. Now, the Dutch people have always carried ID cards, and this was a practice that the Nazis really capitalized on. They demanded that Dutch Jews add a J to their cards to make them more easily identifiable. Arondius and the others started to produce the fake IDs so that the Jews could hide their identities. Arondius and his colleagues soon discovered there's a serious problem with their forgeries. They're easily proven false when they're compared to the information files at the Municipal Public Records Office. And after finding more and more counterfeit documents, the Nazis are doing exactly that. They're making the Bureau's existence a serious obstacle for rescuing the persecuted Jews. Arondius comes up with a great solution. He's just going to destroy the records in the building by blowing it up. Okay, so just mere seconds ago, I was thinking, oh my God, they're going to burn it down. And the genealogist in me is screaming because we're always looking for records, right? Yeah. Then on the other hand, like that was exactly my first thought was too. If you're going to save these people, burn the records, hide the records, and make them go away. You know, so it, the the genealogist says, "Gosh, it'd be nice to have those records." But the genealogist says, "Gosh, it'd be nice to have those genes." Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so, hundred percent on Disney Plus, there is a series that is on now called A Small Light that is about Anne okay. Frank, and. Okay. In episode five, because I, of course I binged the entire thing and sobbed like a baby last week. As you um, do. The characters do a great job of portraying this exact scene. Uh, they have Willem Arondius featured as a, as a minor character in this. And you watch the characters decry how organized they are as a people and you know, how effective they are with government. 
because they realize it's their fault that they've enabled the Nazis so well to track down the Jewish population. They're being great government. And then it turns around and like, yeah, right in the face. Yeah. They're like, we're so good at doing great things for our people that it can be twisted. And that's kind of a, you know, a really interesting thing on like the worst things in the world are good things that are just slightly tweaked. And now they're completely atrocious. Well, on the night of March 27th, 1943, the Amsterdam police department receives a telephone call from the Gestapo. The municipal public (laughs) records office was on fire. Led by someone wearing a fake police captain's uniform, 15 men, an investigation shows later, arrived at the building and asked for the Nazi guard stationed there to open up for a special inspection. The uniforms, of course, counterfeit, and they're made by a friend of Arondias, and once inside, they disabled the guards with drugs and moved the guards to the courtyard to keep them safe. Then they set the building on fire. So, okay, 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 I'm sorry. So, this, this chain of events. Yeah. A fire, a small fire gets lit, the police get called, the police that show up are Arondius and his crew. Negative, negative, you got it? Let me, let me, let me flip it. So, Arondius and his crew show up in, in fake uniforms. Right, okay. Okay. They incapacitate the guards. They move the guards to the courtyard to keep them safe. They, they then go about setting fire to the building. After oh, okay. all of this fun stuff. That's when the Gestapo called the fire department. Okay. I, I thought that, like, they, I thought this was some kind of Ocean's Eleven level, like, we already called the police, oh, but we were the police that showed up. That so would I... <laughs> Well, okay, either way. Either way, it's freaking amazing. <laughs> they get out of the building unscathed. Good. Okay. Next paragraph. All 15 members were members of the Russian Dutch resistance. One was a historian by profession. One was an architect. Several were medical students. It's the medical students who sedated the guards. Brilliant. The uniforms were made by a friend. Oh, I already said that. Okay, so made by the guards. Okay. Uh, Others were civil service officers or office clerks. None were trained saboteurs. They had no background in special operations or surgical strikes. What they brought to their task was a deep dedication and opposition toward tyranny and their own humanity. Good on. And leading the group, Willem Arondius. I love him. Their plan was as daring as it was dangerous, and it's only partially successful. Oh, no. Although they badly damaged the building, it's not completely destroyed. The group manages to absolutely decimate 800,000 identity cards. Thousands more are smoke and water damaged. Now they're mostly unreadable, so some parts are legible. They also appended filing cabinets and scattered the contents, and it makes the surviving documents unusable for weeks. Okay. So imagine you you come into work the next day, and you you have your (laughs) Nazi overseer saying, Yes, yes, but organize the files. Yes, 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 yes. But but realphabetize them. Pick them up, dry them out. You can do this. Oh, that one's partially legible. I'm see, I'm picturing like um the line you hang your laundry on. Oh yeah. With, like yeah. clothespins. 
and little pieces of paper. Yep. Yep. Uh huh. Uh, here's the bad news. Unfortunately, hadn't incinerated the entire archive that contained over 5 million records. Oh. Some sources say that they only destroyed about 15%. Dang it. I was really hoping because it was such a high number that they got like the bulk of it. I know. Unfortunately. Um, the men are also quickly captured. They're betrayed by an anonymous source. One source said that Willie Morandius was a part of the initial roundup and in his on his persons was a list of the co-conspirators because of course you have a list of your friends for in your little address book or whatever, right? So 12 of them received the death penalty on June 18th of 1943. Mm. I'm only halfway through my notes, so it's going to get dark, but it's going to get better. Two weeks later, on July 4th, or pardon, two weeks later, on July 1st, 1943, the men were marched to an execution site where they faced a firing squad without blindfolds. Iranius died there alongside the others. He was 48 years old. But Willem Arandius didn't go silently. Shortly before his death, he relayed his final words to his lawyer. Let it be known that homosexuals are not cowards i've heard that before and i thought it came from um the code guy that's so that's awesome i love knowing the right name you thought it was alan turing yeah now interesting i'm gonna want to look those two up together and see what i can find among those executed was sword baker 1915 to 1943 he's a tailor cutter and fashion designer like arondius a close friend, he was openly homosexual. It was him who fabricated the police uniforms used on March 29th, 27th. Just before his execution, the Nazis allowed him to make a single request. He asked to wear his favorite pink shirt, which became his shroud. And after the war, it helped to identify him and his colleagues in their unmarked mass grave. Mm. That's that's one of those unfortunate mercies, right? Yeah. After Willem Arandius's death, his story of being a courageous resistance of, of after William Arandius' death, his story of courageous resistance against the Nazi occupation is largely sl- swept under the rug. And OZY reports that a heterosexual member of the Dutch resistance is credited with the bombing, even though it's Arandius who led the charge. Decades later, in the 18 decades later in the 1980s, the Dutch government finally awards Arandius a posthumous medal for his bravery, but they give it to his family. You know, the ones who kicked him out, the ones he, he didn't that. talk to. Like, then they go find his boyfriend's family. Yo, Tissen, buddy. Yeah. I feel like that's a more deserving place for it to go. But my I guess only, in the 80s, yeah, okay. My only hope is that giving it to his family kind of rubbed salt in the wound that is their bigotry. Yeah. That's my hope. And hope that it spurred them towards making kinder, more inclusive decisions. Okay. Okay. I'll allow it. I didn't research it and see what became of them. I don't know if I care. Yeah. Um, I just, I just hope they, they love more. Mm -hmm. 
But Arondius's sexuality remained something of a taboo topic and didn't make history books until the 1990s. And it's only in recent years that he's gotten his due as a gay resistance fighter. And although deeply involved in the planning of the Public Records Office Offensive, a Dutch musician named Frida Belafonte, from, who <laughs> lived from 1904 to 1995, she couldn't be there because there's no women on the Amsterdam police force. And so if a chick showed up in a uniform, it's going to be very suspect. Right. She's a well-known, highly respected cellist, a pioneering female conductor, and made no secret of her loving women. And when she was 18, she meets Harriet Bozeman's, an up-and-coming pianist, and their relationship lasts for six years. After the exploits of March 27th, Belafonte first hid in Amsterdam disguised as a man. And she says, I looked pretty good. <laughs> the Dutch resistance then smuggles her out of the country to Belgium and then into France, where the French underground helps her reach Switzerland. And at first, the Swiss refuse her asylum. And it's only after a Swiss friend confirms that she is, in fact, a Dutch citizen that she's allowed to stay. The Swiss repatriated Belafonte to the Netherlands soon after the war ends in 18... I'm going to butcher that every time. I don't know why I want to keep saying 18. In 1945, <laughs> the war ends. That's when World War II ends, not a uh, hundred years prior. Um, she then moves to the United States two years later and taught music at UCLA, gave private lessons, and played Hollywood studio soundtracks. That's In 1954, fun. she becomes a founding artistic director and conductor of the Orange County Philharmonic, making her the first woman to be a permanent conductor of the resident professional orchestra. And she was a friend of our, a friend of our friend? She was a friend of Willem's. That's amazing. Now... I will say, I'm going to end on this. None of these defenders of humanity were defeated by fascism's brutality. They had defied opposition and shown others how to fight it. For Arondius especially, that effort had been worth the sacrifice. Quote, death has no horror for any of us, unquote, he wrote to a friend. I go with a grateful heart. Mm. And to the end, he remained true to both his principles and himself. Oh, and that is the story of Willem Arondius. And now I'll share my screen again, and I'll give you kind of a tour of these cast of characters. <laughs> so Willem Arondius, as formerly seen, that is Belafonte and her lover, they both have amazing hair. Don't they? Yeah. The black and white doesn't doesn't hurt these facts. Um, yeah, no, not the, at all. The amazing man who created the, the guard costumes. Has got to be. Yep. Okay. That's I was him. Gonna... That's mm -hmm. him. That big smile and the I know my way around a sewing machine kind of devil may care yep. grin. Mm -hmm. That's him. <laughs> uh, this is an image of one of Willem's works. That is oh, Willem wow. Arondius there sitting at a table looking like he is about to give you some absinthe and you will enjoy it. It'll be the best trip of your life. <laughs> and 100% exactly what that picture looks like. <laughs> yep. I, I'm not making this up. I've been looking at these images for quite a while. So this is what you get. And then this image here is the marker that is 
in Amsterdam to talk about the attack on the municipal public records. Oh, okay. Okay. So That's the Dutch awesome. actually commemorate the fact that their own civil building was blown up. As you should. It was done to protect your people. I love that. I just cannot get, I'm sorry. I am absolutely charmed by the, the smile on, on, <laughs> on his face. I okay. Can, I can so, absolutely hear him going, oh, honey. <laughs> in in one of these sources, it talked about how they all operated out of the first and probably at the time only gay bar in Europe. Oh, now, okay. Nazis were not allowed to be seen in the neighborhood that this bar was because it has the gay bar and it also has the red light district. This checks. But soldiers will be soldiers. Mm-hmm. And soldiers gonna visit the red light district. Soldiers gonna soldier. So, so you know what? <laughs> this the, this is human nature. In fact, well, when Nazis inevitably come into the gay bar where everybody is doing their thing, they had an a light in the shape of an owl in one of the windows, and they would turn that light on to basically be like, you know, to, tone it down when you're in here, and. Mm-hmm. It was a great little little nod. So everybody knew what that meant and they were able to avoid. They also, one source said that they had Jews being hidden above the bar as well. So these guys were all over the place, just mucking it up for the oppression regime. I love that. It was incredible. And if you get the chance and you want to assassinate the last shreds of mental health that you have or you need to get a good cry i really suggest a small light because it really does a very good job of showing it's the story of anne frank but it's done through the main character they position meep who's the one who hides the franks as the main character so you see her struggle and you see her relationship with her husband and then on the periphery, you see all of the other resistances. Cause it's not like the Dutch resistance was one organized. Right. You right. know, it was, it was a bunch of, of splinter cells that everybody operated separately from each other. And so you see how all of them move not in concert, but towards the same goal. Right. Right. And so it just, it does an incredible job of really surfacing a lot of these intense themes. I, and it's called, it's a small, a small, a small light. light. Yeah. Okay. okay. I'm going to, I'm going to give it a watch. I, I love that you said, if you want to assassinate the last shred of your mental health or you need a good cry, because sometimes I need a good cry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so my daughter was coming in and out of the room as I'm watching it I'm sitting on the couch and she'd look over at me and she'd be like, what's going on? And I'm like, okay, well, you're about the age of Anne Frank. This is Anne Frank. And I, I kind of walked her through the story because I knew the story of Anne Frank before I learned, you know, the, right before I read the book, you know, her diary. And she comes in at the last episode and she's like, okay, well, what is, what is that? Because that's so-and-so and that's so-and-so. And I'm trying not to give you any spoilers. And I went, yeah. And she watched the last episode with me, which is they tie up all the loose ends. They tie up all, all the denouement. Everything is brought to a close. And 
we just sat there and sobbed and she just choked out in between cries. I really hate Hitler. And that was one of those moments where I just went, yeah, kid, me too. (laughs) You're not, yeah, you're not wrong. Mm -hmm. Ethan had that when he read uh, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Oh. Yeah. So we ask him all the time, like, you know, what are you, what are you doing in school? What are you reading? What do you, those types of questions. And he was like, when he, (laughs) when he first, so when I first, when he was first reading it, I was like, oh, you know, what book did you start today? And he said, oh, we started this book. It's called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And I was immediately like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what this book is about, bud? And he's like, um, mm, I kind of, I think it's about World War II. And as like, he's reading more, like they're yeah. reading it in class as part of class. The day he finished the book, he came home and he was like, mom. And I was like, yeah, bud, that's... I knew this was coming. Yeah, like, we we had had a real brief conversation that first night with him, like, this could be hard. Yeah. Like, be prepared. You're, there's some stuff here that's not, not the story you want to be hearing, but it's the story you need to hear. Right. And, and he's like, right, right, right. So when he, when he finished it, he handled it so well, but he was like, I can't believe that people would you know humanity is that way and i said well humanity is not that way that's the worst of humanity right and you just got a a very small glimpse of something that was very real for a lot of people for a long time yeah and and we can't forget it ever and he's like yeah (laughs) and owen's over here going what's happening it's just pajamas oh (laughs) Because he's deep in learning Greek mythology. So yeah. he's like trying to equate like, wait, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I love you so much. <laughs> that's that's a much lighter version than a story you triggered in my brain. I was a sophomore in high school and I was taking summer school and I was, it was taking a history class. And towards the end of the class, our teacher had an absolute brilliant assignment, which was to make sure we studied for the final, um, we had to create our own history book that was a summary of what we'd learned. Okay. Um, it was an absolute beast of a project, but it was incredible actually making me study. Well, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. My grandmother comes in and she's like, where are you at now? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm pretty close to World War II. And she's like, when you get to World War II, stop. Go to the next section. I, I, I'm busy. And I was like, first off, you've never helped me with my homework. I don't need you, but I want to skip <laughs> okay. this because I, I have the opera. You said skip, so I skip. Well, she comes back in like 20 minutes later, and she's carrying piles of shoeboxes. Okay. And she drops them onto my bed and just completely movie-esque, the lid of the top shoebox pops off and there are photos and patches with swastikas on them. Oh. And I'm like, uh, what? Explain what? yourself? <laughs> and she says, well, Gramps' uncles fought in World War II in Patton's army and they liberated death camps. Oh, wow. And so... She then hands me a pair of cotton gloves and she says, put these on. 
and we go through the letters that they wrote home. We hold the ration book for World War II that was given to my grandfather when he was four. We look at all of the unpublished photos that they took when they liberated death camps. And I just looked at her dumbfounded and I said, can I take these to school tomorrow? And she goes, yeah, but I want you to use the same level of respect that we're using right now. Absolutely. No one touches them. If you touch them, you use these gloves. I went, okay. And it was the most sobering class because I walk into class and I went, hey, teach, I'm going to railroad your class today. Um, (laughs) Look at what my grandma showed me. And he was like, oh, holy crap. Please do. (laughs) You know, because it was one of those things like, you thought the black and white photos in the history books were bad, but those were the ones deemed mm-hmm. appropriate to show children. Yeah. And here I've got the uncuts from some GI Joe. Yeah. 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 I'm going to say that while I have not had that experience, we went to a few years ago, we went to a like, gun expose like military like flea market for lack of a better I don't really know what to call it but there was an entire table of World War II memorabilia propaganda things like that which is stuff you know we see as far as the U.S. side goes right right we see that all the time we get to this section of the table and it's the German military garb and they're swastikas and their SS badges and their hats and I literally couldn't leave the section I I, like I stared at everything yeah and Ian was like are you okay and I'm like I'm 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 just I'm having a moment I need to I need to own something from right here and he's like that is strange but okay yeah and so like we're looking through the things and there was a coin in there that I have it's in my jewelry box now but when I picked it up like the weight of the coin had so much weight of the story mm. like, I don't know who carried that coin I don't know if he really agreed with the Nazi beliefs or he was just doing what he had to do to survive like I don't know but it had so much gravity to the moment for me that I was like I can't leave without this like I don't care how much money this costs us right this costs somebody something far greater than we within we have like, I must have this coin. One, in my jewelry box. one of the things that I have, because I inherited all the World War II stuff in my gramps past, because that was one of the things, like, he'd asked all the grandkids, when I go, what's the one thing you want? My sister said, I want all the clocks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which, that's why I'm so excited to have the grandfather clock in the living room, because that's his. <laughs> Anyhow, um, that just that just happened. Like, as soon as she said she wants all the clocks, I was like, dang it. But I hadn't known, I hadn't known, like, when he asked me, I said, I want the World War II memorabilia. I didn't think about the clocks. I was like, I think I'm the only grandkid who probably wants that, because I believe in treasuring it and mm-hmm. being a custodian and ensuring that others see it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think my other cousin's or the other grandkids, including my sister, I don't think they have that bend. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means it's not how they're programmed. Right. And so if that's what feels valuable to me, then that's what I want to hold on to. Absolutely. 
But one of the things I have is a certificate of safe conduct, which I guess people on both sides, Axis and allies both had. It was like, if you are, say, a medic, if you are, say, a chaplain, you had this document that said basically, hey, I don't carry a gun. Like, please don't kill me. I'm here to help. Yeah, like. (laughs) I literally am not the one that you should worry about. And I don't know the story behind where that came from. I don't know if it was removed from somebody who passed. I don't know if it was taken when somebody was taken prisoner. I don't know anything other than that this paper exists. And it is one of those like fascinating things that you look at and you go, who held this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like just the absolute weight of an item and not like in the physical weight of it, but like the emotional heart weight of it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I I now need a good solid cry. Thanks. (laughs) I know now. See, now you're prepared to go and finish out the night sobbing hysterically. (laughs) And if you've enjoyed the pod, I'm (laughs) just, If you too would like a good cry, right? Uh, we recommend. <laughs> hmm. Um. Well, I have. I don't want to call my story a palate cleanser, but my story is a completely different set of wild. If you want to hear it, uh, I feel like we need to. You know, okay. anything to get us out of death camps. Yeah, there's no death camps in this one. <laughs> <laughs> no puppy eating. No death camps. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Are you though? Because no. I'm not. No, I'm not even a little bit sorry if I'm being honest. Let's see. Okay. I'm pulling my story up in two places because there's some great artwork um, related to my person, but also uh, I don't want to tell my whole story from here. So. so. There we go. Okay. Oh God, where'd you go? I lost you. There you are. You know, I used to have a name tag that said lost and confused and then had my name underneath. It was fabulous. I lost it in a move and I still cry about it. (laughs) It's funny that you lost it in a move and it said lost and confused. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, can you see me? I can see you. That was weird. Okay. It like froze on my side, but I could still see me if that makes any sense. I'm glad you could still see and understand who you are in this universe. That's that's of the utmost importance when I'm honest. It it, it really is. Thank you. Um okay. So I'm going to I'm going to start my story with a disclaimer. My story starts 350 years ago and there is a ton of missing information about this individual. They know this individual was real. They know this individual definitely existed. Um, And quite a lot of these stories are probably true. That being said, they could also be very embellished because a lot of the stories were not written down or told until long after their death. I am noticing solid trends with the stories you pick. And Mm -hmm. this is cracking me up. Isn't it fabulous? I love the unknowns, like, hmm, build them, choose your own adventure, if you will. <laughs> However, this person does exist, and it's not Mother Shipton, but take this story with the same grain of salt you took Mother Shipton with. Done. <laughs> okay. So, um, my 
my primary source for this um, is author Kelly Gardner, who um, spent several years doing research to write a book about this individual. And her, her website is amazing. It's ekellygardner.com. Goddess, the real life of Julie Dogney. Have you heard of her? I am going to assume that maybe a year and a half ago, one of us sent the other one a meme of this woman who was a fabulous lesbian who did all kinds of things, including breaking into a nunnery just to sleep with one of the nuns. Yes. That's her. Carry on. Okay. So um, now I'm also kind of upset that I didn't do this one. (laughs) I loved yours, though. Yours was so good. I just I had to do. I really wanted to do just um, an over-the-top, like, such a fun character, such a fun story that I was like, hold up. I mean, be serious. <laughs> this is one of those stories in the I got to do it before Angie does it. And yes. this is one of the ones that I have clearly lost the race. Yeah, I won this one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But you got to do all the research and I don't know anything outside of the meme from her. And so I won't give any okay. of the spoilers from the meme that I remember. Okay, so um, one of my other sources is LAPL.org, their collections and resource uh, blog on Julie Dami, La Mopin, and early French opera. The delightful You're Dead to Me podcast, <laughs> which I um, specifically set out to find podcasts on this individual because uh, there's a lot of names. I wanted to make sure I had some correct pronunciation right for so, um, but like I said, the bulk of it, and that actually your Dead Me podcast led me to Kelly Gardner. So uh, the bulk of it is going to be from her. So that being said, also, sadly, a lot of her records don't exist anymore simply because during the French Revolution, they were destroyed. <laughs> you know, the whole I'm going to, you know, Willem Arondius, this building has mm-hmm. happened many, many times throughout history. Yeah, yeah, it has. But because I now have an understanding that maybe we destroyed records for the safety of our people, I'm going to let it fly. Right. <laughs> um, so she could have gone by several names. Um, and we'll, I'll, I'll tell you them as we go. But uh, La Maupin is one. Mademoiselle Maupin. Uh, Julia Mew. At one point, uh, a, a novel was written about her in the 1800s, and she is referred to, uh, her character in that is called Madeline, so sometimes she's called Madeline, but for the bulk of the story, her name is Julie, and that's how I'm going to tell it, because okay. that seems to be the most consistent name. So she was born in or around 1673 to the secretary of the Count Louis de Lorraine-Guise de Maniac, a noble in King Louis XIV's court. Um, he served as Louis's master of the horse, and so by default, um, her father is his horse. Secretary. Yeah, the master of the horse. So I was making sure it was horse and not courtesans. Yeah, horse. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, horse, not horse. <laughs> um, so she was his secretary's daughter. Unfortunately, there's no, we don't know anything about her mother. So I kind of have to think that maybe she died in childbirth. Okay. But I'm not, that's just my opinion. Um, but that being said, she was basically 
raised in the stables. Um, she was most she most likely spent her very early years at the writing school in Tulare's Palace in France. But by 1682, she would have gone with her father when Louis moved the court to Versailles. Along with the job of training the horses and all that entails, her father, who is called, are you ready for this? Go on. <laughs> Gaston d'Aubney was also a very accomplished swordsman, and he trained all the court pages. Some he believe... must look exactly like Gaston. I, I he has to. to believe otherwise. Yeah, like, I, yeah. I don't want any evidence to, to contradict my brain. Yeah, no, I, I won't give it to you because I also <laughs> refuse to believe otherwise. Fair. Um, some believe that her father was at one time a musketeer. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but that immediately gave me the biggest crush on her dad. <laughs> Just saying. I'll, this this is really coming together. Yeah, I have a real soft spot for the musketeers. Um, so that being said, her he saw so Pop saw her education. Um, she was trained and educated alongside the pages of the court. So she would have learned all the academics as well as writing and fencing, just like the boys. She didn't learn. She didn't have a female's education because I'm going to assume Dad was like, "Well, I could do it. I'll just teach her," but right. he doesn't know how to embroider, right? Um, so. <laughs> She is said to be the best of them. She can outfence anybody in the squad. By the time she's 12, and probably for practical reasons, she starts dressing in men's clothing because pants, that's why. Because pockets. Exactly. 100%. Um, roughly 14, maybe 15, she becomes the mistress to the count. Yeah, yeah, the dad's boss, that one. I mean, that's one way to make sure you guys eat and get a Christmas bonus. Right? Dad dies around 1687, so he might not have known about the um, her being the mistress. But either way, the Count arranges a marriage for her to one Stuart de Montpain and promptly gives him a tax collecting job and ships him off, possibly the morning after the marriage. <laughs> so it's like, I'm going to make sure you're nice and secured here. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to get rid of the competition that I secured you to. Yeah, because we have to make you look, continue to look proper, right? Um, it's absolutely a marriage of convenience for her. Mr. Maupin was described as timid. And to be honest, when you hear her entire story, timid doesn't strike to me as someone that would keep her entertained for long. Um, so not long after Mr. Maupin is shipped to become a tax collector, she either gets bored of the count or he can no longer deal with her wild ways when she decides to run away with a fencing master called Saron. Maybe a little column A, maybe a little column B. Right. Um, however, it, don't think it like is entirely romantic, though, because Saron killed a man in a duel and had to flee <laughs> because police lieutenant general Nikolai Gabriel de Lorraine was in hot pursuit. Um, dueling by this time is definitely outlawed in France. And so Saron basically comes to her and he's like, hey, we gotta go, okay, bye! And they like hightail it out of Paris, right? So she saw a fast ticket out of town. Yes. And threw her, her luggage on the coach. Pretty much. Okay. Um, so they pay their way to Marseille doing fencing demos and singing in pubs at fairs and you know markets and things like that. 
One story says that during one of these fencing demos, a man refused to believe that she was a woman because, you know, women can't fence that well. And she was dressed as a man, so therefore she must be a man, which totally gives If me it Superman. looks like a duck. Yes. Looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's, it's probably a goose. Um, I don't know. It made me laugh because I was thinking Superman, Clark Kent vibes. Like, how can you not tell that she's a woman? But okay. I mean, you say that, but then we have to talk about, you know, the concept of trans people passing as the gender that they are. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you have to understand, like, you can be feminine or have an effeminate face or you could have like, I once met a girl who had the square jaw that Willem Arondius had and it looked fantastic on her brother. She is described as erogenous, so my guess is perhaps that leans to her not being um, easily identifiable as a man. So. Okay, now see, so this is all making sense, but carry on. Yeah. Um, so anyway, to prove she was a female, she takes her blouse off. That would do, do it. Yep. And the crowd was stunned silent. <laughs> I, that tends to happen just in the presence of uh, a well- produced set right it's either that good or wording. cheers you know good wording i'm thinking cheers were probably had but it i think they were more shocked at, at first you know like oh oh wait maybe at, she is a female at first <laughs> you see the full rack and you go i wasn't expecting such an arsenal and then it hits you and then you <laughs> cheer and someone in the back says buy her a beer and then she and puts then her there's shirt a rousing up. dance number afterwards and they're they're back to singing in the pub it all comes full circle yep yep it's that delightful scene in beauty and the beast with gaston in the tavern no one flashes like gaston's daughter no one (laughs) slashes like gaston's daughter yes exactly that no one flees the city sorry i can't go any it it wasn't quite working that was that was good good, though i liked it i mean (laughs) b plus what are you gonna do that's her uh, at this point, so they've made it to Marseille, and she gets hired on at the budding opera house, where she is quickly admired, though she has no formal training and cannot read music, but she has a wonderful voice and a great ear. Several parts were even written just for her. You're... That and part during... where you lie on your resume, but you still do a good job? Yeah, I, I, I speak Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> she is Nancy waking her wake through this. <laughs> um... At this point, during one of the performances, she locks eyes with the beautiful young daughter of a wealthy merchant. Unfortunately, we don't know the young lady's name. And the parents are not pleased, so they ship her off to a nunnery. Just for looking at somebody on stage? I believe there was, um, I think... I think daughter may have said I'm running away with her. I'm I'm keeping this one. Something like that. Like I think mom and dad knew there was something afoot. Okay, because other than that, the way you told that story was so she's watching TV and she makes <laughs> eye contact or she looks at the main character. And they're in love. And it's like Harold, do you see the way she's looking at the TV? <laughs> she doesn't no, watch think... commercials like that, Harold. I I think that they probably met up after the performance and it was like instant 
like we're absolutely I'm in love with you right now like okay because um, that other than that I'm gonna have to tell everybody hey the tv's on look at your knees stop it look at your stop. knees or you're look, going yeah. to a convent pretty much yeah um and and okay so this is the part where my husband about killed me what could possibly go wrong with sending someone that enjoys their own gender to a nunnery I mean <laughs> the best laid plans right like you know you have a thought you're like you know what she just needs more Jesus I, yeah okay so what ends up happening is Julie follows her to the nunnery and and they they join the nunnery together and they live out their life in peace and that's the end of the story that's that not, not the end of the story, story. that is not the end of the story it's not um promptly upon her getting there they immediately begin to plot an escape and since julie doesn't do anything without a little flair she gathers the needed supplies and horses and waits for an elderly very sick nun to die one account says that they dug her up another account simply says that they stole her body and they put her in the girlfriend's cell they make their way out of the convent meanwhile setting the place on fire and escape this episode has been brought to you by arson <laughs> the letter a <laughs> um because the whole idea is if you know if if the convent if the cell that she was in is burned and they find this body the idea is that she is now free because the dot, you, you know, the young right, lady is right, free now yeah. because she's technically dead, right? Um, well, so they were delightfully on the run for like three months. That's um, a good the, run. Right. Uh, the plot does get uncovered and Julie's girlfriend goes back home to mom and dad. And she herself, Julie herself, is charged in absentina, which is basically like, you're not here, but we're charging you with this crime anyway. Yeah by the Parliament of Aix-en-Provence to death by fire. So do they hold the sentence without her there as well? And they just burn an effigy and call it a day? <laughs> you know, I mean, if, I if mean, it can be that... done in absentia, then that's, hey, you know what? I'm hold my execution in absentia. Will you please? Okay. Thank you. Yes. Um, what's interesting about this, though, is they charge her as a sir because they cannot accept that a woman had done these things. So she is tried and charged as a man. She she commits arson like a sir. Absolutely. And, and she did technically kidnap a young lady, didn't she? Like um, a sir. Stole a body like a sir. Like a sir. At some point during this time, she is said to have, quote, bumped into a young man who was a noble called the Comte Albert, who immediately challenged her to, to a duel. He didn't know she was female at the moment. And anyway, the story says she beats him, wounding him, but decides to nurse him, nurse him back to health. And when I read that, I immediately saw like the montage in the movie of him doing like the push-ups and like getting better and healthier and then having like picnics by the beach. <laughs> well, the first couple of scenes are, you know, him getting spoon fed from a little wooden uh -huh. bowl. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. In a very dimly lit cell. Yeah. 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 Um, either way, whether that actually happened or not, they do remain friends for life. Some say that he was actually the great love of her life, but honestly, I don't think she could have had just one. She seems like the kind who stacks up favorites. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. Um, also around this time, Julie begins taking professional singing lessons from Mar Marcel, Marcel, who was a 
musician and an actor that was very impressed by Julie. He would eventually encourage her to, the, to apply to the Paris Opera House. At this time, she also meets Gabriel Vincent Benvenard, who, hopefully I pronounced that right, who also was a singer, and they traveled to Paris together. The moment she arrives in Paris, she immediately goes to see her old flame, the Count Armniac, and asks if he could make her little mistake in Marseille disappear via a pardon so she doesn't have to get burned to death. It's a it's good using of your network, right? Exactly. Um, Gabriel was hired on at the Paris um, like almost immediately, but his one condition was that Julie also be allowed to audition. She becomes a member of the Paris Opera House, one of the most prestigious in the world, at only 17 years old. Wait, so we're only at age 17 of her existence, and she's... Yeah. Already burnt down a convent. <laughs> been in several duels, has mm-hmm. already been tried and, and... Pardoned. Convicted and pardoned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Here's just... where some would say she had a troubled youth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh... She, like I said, she does earn her pardon from King Louis, um, and she becomes the star of the Paris Opera. What I think is interesting here is she earns, some believe that she earns her pardon from King Louis because even though the crimes she's charged with are pretty up there, like they're pretty stacked, um, he pardons her because he is all about art. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me zoom back to the very beginning of this story. She's 17 now. Mm-hmm. How old was she when she was her dad's boss's mistress? Like 14 or 15. There she didn't are... stay his mistress very long. I don't, yeah. Okay, so everything about this is problematic. From the beginning to the end, yeah. I mean, aside, oh, not from the beginning to the end, because dad did raise her and give her pockets and fencing lessons. <laughs> like, it's... Thank you for addressing the pockets because she got pockets and fencing lessons. And to be honest, that's all you need in life. Prove me wrong. Exactly. If I've got a knife, prove me wrong. I will challenge you to a duel at noon. <laughs> and you at three. And hey, thank you because we're going to get there. <laughs> okay. Carry on. Carry on. Um, so like I was saying, King King Louis, like there's some, some serious belief that... Um, during his reign, he really wanted to assert, like, the, uh, what is that called? Not Immaculate Conception. Um, uh, you know, his power manifest comes destiny? From God. Yeah. His power comes from God. So, I in mean, doing so. There's a lot of religious overtones, so I understand how you would get Immaculate Conception. <laughs> I mean, I understand the mental leap. You know, like, I, yeah, I see the, it's it's a fuzzy <laughs> connection, but it's there for me, just so you know. Thanks. Um, so the belief is that he kind of allows her to go about her business and do what she does because she's a great artist and he funds all sorts of art and a lot of artists that snub the church or snub uh, the authority of the church. And so there's some that believe that that's the sole reason that he pardons her to begin with. Um but needless to say, she's pardoned and she is now the star of the Paris Opera. She appears in all of the major shows from 1690 to 1694. And by this point, she is called Le Maupin. Okay. 
However, her time in Paris was cut when she attended a court ball in men's clothing and kissed a young woman while on the dance floor. This earned her no less than three duels from three nobles. They met outside. She fought all three at once and beat all three of them at once. (laughs) Yep, she's amazing. Right? When I read that, my first thought was, oh my gosh, she's young D'Artagnan from the Three Musketeers. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but remember, I had the only... biggest crush on Chris O'Donnell because of that film. Right? Yeah. Like, I don't want to look up pictures of him currently because he is the young D'Artagnan. I... Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. And old D'Artagnan is played by Gabriel Byrne in The Man in the Iron Mask, and I will hear nothing else. Mm. Yeah, I agree your terms. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I like to think that, that that story is cohesive. Yep. Complete through yeah. line. Don't, don't prove me wrong. Yeah, I will not hear it anyway, so carry on. Yep. Um, so, because outlaw- uh, dueling is, in fact, still outlawed, she has to flee. So to Brussels she goes, where she very quickly becomes the lover of the Elector of Bavaria. And he found her to be like a lot and literally tried to pay her 40,000 francs to go away. Okay. I I have never been paid to leave. I need to really up up my ante here. Because you're not doing something right here because I don't have 40,000 francs sitting at my feet. I tried to do the currency converter on this. I think it is like three million dollars today maybe i just need to become the lover of somebody rich and then piss them off but you have to get in a duel and then piss them off. i need my knee to get better so that i can go back to karate that's what yeah, i need you yeah you do uh yeah so he throws he he tries to give her the money get her to go away she very huffy throws the money in his feet and storms off to madrid if you're going to leave, take the money. I know. I don't know what she was thinking. But anyway, I would have taken the money, too, because now she's working as a maid to the Countess Marino, and she really does not like the Countess at all. I'm surprised it she said, just doesn't become her lover, because that seems to be her go-to strategy. I'm assuming they met, and she just couldn't. She just didn't like her, because there's every story, every source that I read, there's huge contention between these two women. You know, you so, can't, you're not attracted to everybody. So I won't, I won't make her be a flat character. So, okay, carry on. She really ruined it, right? Um, there was belief that one night before a ball, she dresses the countess's hair up with radishes so that everyone can see it except for the countess. After she leaves for the ball, Julie gets on the road and heads back to Paris. She is not staying any longer. So, like, not so only... she pranks her and then bounces before she can be found out and beaten. Yep. Okay. I mean, I don't know if I would have used radishes, but you know, I'm going to assume because I was thinking the same thing. I am going to assume that it was some cultural symbology at the time. Yeah. Like that and radishes smell weird. So, like, but not necessarily so bad that you'd be like, is that cat poop? I uh, yeah, cat I, poop. I really think it was a cultural symbol. Like, I, I'm just unclear, but that's just my That opinion. makes sense. Yeah. Where it's like, um, this I, woman has no butt and there's peaches in the back of her head. Do you see that? Like, this yes. is like, I, I suppose she at least needs some crack. So I'm glad something's there. 
Yes, she's got peaches. Yeah, I, it's got to be something okay. like that. All right. Um, maybe it's a play on finances, like she can only afford radishes. I don't know. I just, I really think it's something like that. But okay. anyway, she makes her way back to Paris and again is pardoned for her crimes. The radishes were an absolute, I'm joking. It's not necessarily the radishes. Actually, she was pardoned for her crimes by the king's brother, Philippe, who himself was very effeminate and very queer. You know, we got to stick together. We got to support each other. I am not only an ally, I am a compatriot. Exactly. And there is also, now that I've made it to this part in the story, there is a lot of belief that maybe Louis kind of had a soft spot for Julie because of his brother. And um, I, I kind of, I think it's, in my opinion, I think it's a little bit of both. I think he probably sees her life and is like, wow, you are absolutely wild. Um, I guess my brother could be a little bit more intense. (laughs) I'm just going to go buy him another pair of shoes. Yeah. Uh, You know, he, he just needs a pair of higher loafers, you know, with a bigger (laughs) heel. Um, You simply skewer people exactly um the next part oh excuse me so she she is pardoned and she makes her return to the stage in paris so she is now back Back on the french stage Back on the french stage yep i wonder if it's the same stage that sarah bernhard later gets on (gasps) oh history overlaps sorry but different time periods what though the the french opera has been there for so long though i better probably it I don't think she performed at the French opera, though, because, you know, she was not an operatic singer. She was an actress. I'm assuming there's going to be a little bit well, different. I'm going to have to look into it, but I know that, yeah, you might be right about that. But that they are there are other performances. I would assume at the opera, there's or maybe they say the opera, but it's like they it's just a stage and there's many performances there, like you were saying. Maybe. But the opera is only where you don't say you're going to the opera unless they're singing. But it's like, oh, I'm going to go to the play. And it's held at the same yeah. place. So maybe. OK, anyhow, carry yeah. on. I, I sidetracked um, you enough. Yeah, now I'm, I'm going to think on that for a while. Now. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next part is a really great sum up from the author, Kelly Gardner, um, regarding the next little bit of Julie's life after her pardon so i'm just going to read it because it's absolutely fabulous she quote performed for the court at versailles appeared once again in most major opera productions and and introduced the italian idea of the contralto voice to france she defended chorus girls against nutritious barons and pompous tenors became infatuated with the soprano franchamro tried to kill herself Threatened to blow the Duchess of Luxembourg's brains out and ended up in court for attacking her landlord. <laughs> she and Thevenard Gabriel, the man she first came to Paris with, remained best of friends until her retirement. Although they also had some infamous spats and one evening on stage, she bit his ear so hard he bled. So, through many heroic and sometimes pathetic adventures, the crowds adored her. In spite of her pro- high-profile affairs with women, her brawling and dueling, her breaches and her swords, and even her contralto. Um, 
I just thought that was such a fun like roundup of events that happened over the next couple of years. That is an action-packed life. Right? Like, and well, that's I mean, just like a couple years of your life, just right there. Honestly, like that's pretty much her whole life. Just a couple of years of jam-packed excitement. Yeah. Um, by 1703, Julie meets and falls in love with Madame Le Marquise de Florensac, who was called the most beautiful woman in France, and she was also very wealthy and very super connected. She too run, ran away once to Brussels for several years because the young Dauphin of France was quite into her and she was not having it. Mm. Anyway, once the ladies meet, they live happily and harmoniously for like two years until tragedy strikes again and the sweet madame dies of fever. At this point, Julie is utterly distraught and actually purposefully enters a convent completely beside herself she dies there at the very young age of 33 years old somewhere around 1706 wow yeah i I think at 33 i was just getting my stride right um and and like this woman's life is just such a firecracker there's some really great I have some great art that later artists painted of her. Yeah. There's kind of some speculation as to maybe that's really not who they were thinking of, but honestly, it's in my mind, it totally is. There there's some great works. If you'd like to see them, I will share them. Uh yeah, hold on. I can. That first image is a very Sarah Bernhardt style. Right. Laying back on a velvet cushion <laughs> with a sword in her two hands. <laughs> I love this one. Her and her trousers. She's yep. got, uh, she looks very musketeery, I think, with the big plume in her hat. Right. Oh, oh, I didn't even notice till just now the uh, dead the person behind her. Jewel. Right. <laughs> and then this one, which might be my favorite one. Um, I I love the, the red heart. I don't know what that's symbolic of, but I think it's. I fabulous. mean the 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 garb they have her in there feels very 1900s. Yes, so most of her stories, most of the artwork related to her did not start being produced until the late 1800s. Okay, so that explains so, why she's in a shirtwaist. Yeah, which I think is really um pretty fabulous honestly. Like I typically I would be upset that there's no like more more firsthand accounts or more firsthand art or stories however um in her case i really love that people even you know starting so few as 30 years later were like but did you hear about this broad dude <laughs> and have been, right and have been um uh, adding on to her story or painting her story or singing her story or whatever telling their versions of it for the clearly iconic life that she had means sister threatened the Duchess of Luxembourg and burned down a convent and young laid waste to so many egos of young men oh oh, heartbreaker for sure she's like look yeah, I'm, I'm here for I'm here for the party. Like she's like, look, I'm I'm gonna bust balls. Absolutely. 
you're either going to fall in love with me or I am going to absolutely assassinate your character. And then we'll meet outside 3 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. And that will settle I'll it. finish you off. Yeah. We might become best friends for life afterwards or I'll I mean, have to it, go it, to Brussels. Honestly, it really depends on how well you take losing. Pretty much. If you've got an incredibly fragile male ego, I'm too clumsy to be let around that. I'm I'm going to shatter it. I just really feel like um, the at least at the at the ball, the three nobles that challenged her to a duel, there was definitely some very shallow, very unprepared male egos there that she was like, well, okay then, let's do the thing. Right, like. Ugh. And she, like, she lived, there's no pretense about her. And that, I think, is what I love absolutely the most. Like, like she just, I'm wearing the pants, I'm having the pockets, I'm doing the thing. Okay, bye. Yeah, yeah. You're and either along for the ride or you're not. <laughs> you're, love me or hate me. It's still an obsession. Either way. What is that? Uh, no, bad, bad publicity is still good publicity. Yeah. <laughs> the story of Julie Bobby and I'm so very excited that we shared that meme and I beat you to it. I mean I am just grateful that we didn't both just say and I'm here to tell you about Willem Arondius. Dude when you told me like your person I was like oh crap Ian <laughs> this might be this might be the time. Yeah we, we might actually have done it we might actually tell the same story at the same time Teresa might pass out when she hears my, the name of my person. <laughs> I might have to have a snack about it. Oh, no. That's my girl. Girl Julie. Well Her dad. done. Thank you. And I, I really, so I guess there's like a couple movies that she's featured in. Oh, and I think this is absolutely amazing. Supposedly, a movie was supposed to come out ancient you know, ages ago, starring Greta Garbo. That would we have been ages ago. It. We never got it, but would that not have been fabulous? Oh, she'd have been a great Julie. Right? Absolutely. Like, so sad we didn't get to see it, but I think that's amazing. Yeah, she's, so she's there. It's, it's awesome. Though. Her and Willem probably would have made good friends. I don't get the impression that Willem would have been as a not assertive. That's not the right word. I I get the impression that like she's very direct and like I'm going to like back it up with the point of my spear. And that just when you look at how Willem kind of joined the resistance and didn't necessarily like speak openly, he published papers underground, like all of that. Yeah, I have a feeling he might be a bit more not passive aggressive. But probably chill? closer. No, I there's zero zero chill. <laughs> but probably a bit more at the long game. Probably a bit more. I'm gonna bide my time. A bit more strategic. Yeah, I would say that he was definitely far more strategic than she. I think she was just flying by the seat of her pants and flew and quick. Real, well, yeah, she did right into the sun. Like because by the time he had told his family, Hey, I, I kind of like boys. That's about the time she was at a fever pitch. That's the time she burned down a convent. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> it just goes to show what well-balanced parenting can do. 
<laughs> if you check out of your kid's life too early. This could happen. Right. This could happen. So don't check out. <laughs> do you know where your children are? I do. I know where both of my children are. You kicked them out of the house hours ago. I tried. They came back. Well, <laughs> you didn't lock and change the, we didn't change the locks and lock the door. I sent Owen to his friend's house and he's supposed to be there till noon and he texts me at like 740 and he's like, I'm ready to come home. I have an appointment at 845 and he was like, can you give me at 820 then? And I was like, done. So I, I, I hate that you figured this all out, kid. Like, like he totally understands what's up. Went yeah. to collect him, and I came home with two of them. Hey. <laughs> I'm being duped here. There's no map in duped. the card for me. There is, but it just means that you have to, like, lay down some good insults first and, like, ultimatums. Like, if, if I wake up, you will rue that time. Yeah, no, there's not. I got. I think I got to go make cupcakes. I'm pretty sure I just got a text message asking for help. Turn your phone off. Change your number. New phone. Who dis? <laughs> Dude, I've had the same phone number for almost 11 years. It, it's been longer than that for me. This will probably be the number I die with unless we get the implants in our skulls. <laughs> I'd still like the same phone number, please. It's like, <laughs> I'm too old to memorize new numbers. I'm going to just keep this one. Dude. Okay, so I don't think that he's been on any of our uh, Facebook watches, but my best friend from high school, Tyler, he has not lived in California for um, at least 10 years. Right. At least. Uh, he has been out of his house for 20. Yeah. His dad still puts the bill for his phone because he called him one day. And he was like, Dad, here's the thing. Um, I am definitely an, a, old enough to pay my own bills. Like, whatever, you can you can take me off your, your uh, phone plan. But here's the thing. Um, my phone number is the only phone number Angie actually knows. So <laughs> if it all goes to hell in a handbasket, I'm the only one she knows to call. So is there a way we can, like, this was, a, you know, obviously a long time ago. Is there a right. way we can, I can still keep my same phone number, but not be on your plan? And dad was like, I'll just keep paying your bill. <laughs> he is, refuses because his phone number is the only phone number I actually know. And that makes me laugh so hard, but shows me how much they care at the same time. <laughs> right. You, you are cared to a point where you're being infantilized, truly. They don't believe you can learn something new. They're like, you know what? She makes a decent cupcake. She's got my phone number memorized. That's all we need. Golden. Honestly, that she's. this is all we can expect from her. I don't even know Ian's phone number. My husband, the man I share my life with, couldn't tell you. I think the first three digits are 431, but that might be wrong. And honestly, like we did so much to try to make sure that my daughter knew our phone numbers. <laughs> yep. that it's just like you know we'll get to some place and it'll and she'll be like hey can i use your card and i was like you got to enter my rewards number first 
then we just stand and watch. <laughs> yep. Did it go through? Do you know who I am? Do you know? Can you get to me in an emergency? Like, oh, we have done like um, you know, you know when toddlers go through that phase of calling their their mom or their dad by their actual name. I didn't know like, it was a toddler thing. I just oh, yeah. I thought every that's a very white it. person thing, right? Oh no, every child goes through a phase where they call their dad dad. Like dad's not what they're called anymore, right? Sure. So, okay, fine. I want to say Ethan was like mm, two or three when he went through his phase. And he was trying to get Ian's attention. We're like at a pizza parlor or something, and he's like, Ian, Dad. And then, you know, Ian turned around and he looked at him and our friend was like, Doesn't it upset you that he doesn't call you dad? And he goes, No. I want him to know my name so that if we ever get separated, like at the store, he can go up to the counter and be like, my dad's Ian Craig. Yeah. Can you call him, please? And so we like, perfect. Nailed it. Story time. Kiddo is roughly the same age as yours in that story. Um, she looks at Mike dead in the face, goes, you're my favorite dad. <laughs> and he looks at her and he goes, I didn't realize there was competition. How many, how many are there? And she goes, I have 11. You have 11 dads. And then he side eyes me like I'm about to be caught out. And he says, what are their names? And my kid without skipping a beat, she goes, they're all named Mike. <laughs> and I look at him. I was like, look, I got to type. I can't get messed. You know, I'm not going to call anybody by the wrong name if I stick to the same name. That's what Ian says all the time. Like that is his go to because. He'll like bring me flowers or something, and I'm like, "Oh, are those from me or your other girlfriend?" He'll be like, "Oh, they're from my other girlfriend." And every single time, I'm like, "Oh, what's your name?" He's like, "Angie," because I'm not going to jack that up, right? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to get caught with a busted tail light and go to jail for blowing up buildings. Ex exactly. We also do the thing. I don't know if you do this, but we also do the thing where, like, if we're at the store, we'll ask him to take us home. Like, can you can you give me directions home? Hmm. And if That's... you asked Owen, so he was 10 years old, if you asked him where we lived, he'd tell you we lived at Jamestown Elementary. All right. My So my thought was, if they make it to Jamestown Elementary, someone there is going to be like, oh, I know your mom. Yeah, I, I can get you home. <laughs> yeah. When kiddo was little, I would pick her up from um, daycare and I would be like, and she would say, um, you know, can I give you directions? And I was like, okay, sure. And so she'd be like, turn left. And it really helped her learn left and right. Right. Mm -hmm. She's like, go straight. And I would follow her directions. And oh, yeah. We would end up in some, like, at one point, I was like, honey, that the road literally ends right <laughs> there. I'm, I'm turning yeah. around and I'm praying that we have enough GPS signal to get us home because. The last thing I recognized was a weight or a wastewater treatment facility and 30 miles ago. <laughs> that was sketchy. Yep. The thing that Ian does and it, he still does it and it makes me laugh so hard is we'll ask him, can you get us home? Or they'll, they'll ask to get us directions to wherever we're going. They love to do it. But Owen will be like, okay, turn left. And Ian will just turn left, like right there. Immediately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, no, dad, yard <laughs> you know there was at one point i was given mike directions and i just said follow that car and because i was just like look that car's going the right direction i'll tell you when to change and mike floors it just to mess with me and i'm like ah, ah, okay i mean at a reasonable rate 
go the same direction as that vehicle. Don't be a creep. <laughs> Don't be the reason that that car turns sooner than it has to. Yeah. That car <laughs> will drive past its house because it knows we're following it. Jerk. <laughs> and if you have enjoyed hanging out with us, because we have to remember that other people aside from us actually pay attention to these things, then rate, review, subscribe. But more than anything, honestly, I like hearing from you. I like knowing you exist. Mm -hmm. Unhinged.historypod at gmail.com. Drop us a note. Tell us how we've messed up. Tell us your favorite part of the stories that we may or may not have mentioned. And if you can do a better, no one stabs like Gaston's <laughs> daughter. No, like do it, please. I'm here for it. We like recordings. Thank you so much. And on that note, Goodbye. Bye.